Well, welcome to the beauty and wonder of Easter at Kensington. Thank you for being here. We have invited you over the last couple of minutes to take a, take a journey with us. The story of the king who's come to save the world, to bring glory and beauty to the world. And what a great job by our band and our vocalist and magician and all that stuff. They were incredible, weren't they? But they started us on our journey today telling what we believe to be the greatest story ever told, the greatest story of redemption ever told. If you've ever wondered why redemption stories, movies, and books seem to captivate us deep in our soul, it's because I believe this redemption story is written on the heart of every single human being from the moment we're born. And I believe that God has something specific and special to say to each one of you individually over the next few moments. So let me pray for us and ask God to do just that. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this moment in history 2,000 years ago where you raised from the dead. Lord, each one of us, we need to hear your voice this morning. And so, God, I pray that no matter what we brought in here, whatever has, has wrapped itself around our hearts that keeps us from you, that keeps us from hearing your voice, whatever walls have been built up, Lord, I pray right now that you would just shatter them so that we might hear your voice with our ears and see your heart with ours. And God, I pray this moment that you would speak to each one of us exactly what we need to hear from you. In your holy name, amen. Well, my name is Kevin Valentine, and I'm the lead pastor here. And um, we built this Easter weekend around three major parts of Jesus' life, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. And um, we connected them to three parts of an illusion that you saw in the first five minutes of our service. And I'm telling you, wasn't that awesome? Did you guys see it? Wasn't that great? Did they kill that or what? Now, here's the question. Do you guys want to know how it works? Okay, no, I'm not going to tell you that. Um, I don't want all the magicians in the crowd to be mad at me. We can't give up secrets, you know. But here's what I want to say. The first part of an illusion is called the pledge. You heard it in the voiceover. That was Palm Sunday, Act 1. Jesus riding into town on a donkey looked like an ordinary man, but there was nothing ordinary about him coming into town on a donkey. That was, good, that was uh, Palm Sunday. The second part, the turn was Good Friday, Act 2. We experienced the agony and the power of the death of Jesus and understood what his death means for each one of us. Jesus paying for all sin, past, present, and future. And what disappeared on Good Friday was actually our debt for our sin. Which gets us to today, the prestige, Act 3 where the object is brought back. Jesus raises from the dead. And maybe you're wondering, why would they connect Easter to an illusion? And I'll tell you why we did that. We did it because for some people in the room, many of you in the room right now, that's all Easter is. It's an illusion. It's a, it's a fable. It's a good story for people that need a story like that in their life to make them feel better. And that's what you believe, and that's what you've always believed. I heard a, I heard a pastor recently share this story. He was walking with his three-year-old, and his three-year-old, his name was Reed. And uh, as they were walking along, Reed says, hey, Daddy, you know what? Jesus died on the cross. And the pastor, he was like going, oh, man, I'm really good. My three-year-old gets it. That's how good of a pastor I am. And so he leans over to his son. He says, hey, Reed, and then what? And he has in his mind, he's thinking, oh, you know, atoning work, forgiveness, resurrection implications. And he says, Reed pauses for a second and says, and then a bunny brings me candy. 
<laughs> and I'm just telling you, for many of us, that is as far as it goes when it comes to Easter. It is when we do Easter egg hunts and bunnies come out and we put candy in little plastic eggs and we give them to kids and that's what it's all about. And I'm telling you, as kids, Easter's pretty cool. I'm just going to say. Um, it starts with colored eggs, bunnies, candies, and I think we should completely ban the ripoff of hollow chocolate bunny eggs because that's horrible. That's a bad idea. It's like you pay for one thing and you get nothing in the middle, right? I hate those things. I'm not bitter, though. And then you've got this story of a man rising from the dead. He forgave all of my sins. And I'm just telling you, when I was, when I was young, it's awesome because I had a lot of sins to forgive. Not as many as you guys, but I had some to forgive. But then for some of us, you went to high school and you began to doubt the story. You began to go, really? Hold on, hold on. People really believe that a man died and came back from the dead. And then maybe you went to college and you had a professor who challenged the story, challenged your belief, or challenged you in your belief, and you stopped believing. For others of us, we might have believed it as a kid, but life got hard, and we started wondering tough questions. We started asking, if Jesus rose from the dead, why couldn't he save my parents' marriage? And if Jesus rose from the dead, why couldn't he save my marriage? If Jesus rose from the dead, why didn't I get the job? Why didn't I get the guy? Why didn't I get the girl? Why are so many things in my life not working out? Why didn't my loved one make it through the disease if Jesus rose from the dead? See, pain has a way of taking what we used to believe as kids and stripping us of it. And I'll just say, if you resonate with those questions, where is God when life hurts, when life falls apart, um, why does God allow pain in our lives? We have a series starting next week called Riding the Storm. It's in your programs. Read about it. We're going to tackle some tough questions about life's difficulties. The whole question of, of where is God when things get tough, when things don't go my way? Why do bad things happen? And we're going to jump into it. It's going to be a powerful series for you and any friends you can bring up over the next four weeks. But today, here is my hope. My day, my, today, my hope is that we will discover that none of what happened on Easter Sunday was an illusion, but it was reality. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real event grounded, grounded in history, which is why Easter is the very foundation of the Christian faith. And let me just say this. If there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we might as well pack up, go home, because we're wasting our time. And you don't need to come back next week if there is no resurrection of the dead, because all of Christianity rests on that truth that Jesus died on Good Friday, took our sins on him, paid for them past, present, and future, and then was brought back from the dead to prove his power over sin and death. And it's just not me that's saying that. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament, he said in the first letter to the Corinthians, which is why it's called 1 Corinthians, he said in chapter 15, he said, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, that changes everything. And so I want to take the next few moments and just prove to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fact. It's not fiction. And then what that means for us, that it is fact. And so I want to walk through the Easter story and look at it sort of from a skeptic's view. 
I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm like a prove it to me kind of guy. I'm, I want to see it to believe it. And I know not everybody's wired up that way where, where you need to know the details. It's not the most important part to you. But here's the thing. If this is the most important story in all of history, the details matter. It's important that we know this story. So let's read the Easter story from the book of John. I love his account because he is so much like you and I. A lot of people say, oh, the writers of the Bible, they're not like you and me. They're, different, they're a different breed. Well, let me just tell you you're, what we're about to read. I will prove to you they're just like you and me. John 20, verse 1. John is writing his account of, 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 this, of the resurrection story. Early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now we got to hit the pause button there because G John is writing his account and he doesn't want to appear bragging, so he refers to himself as the other disciple. And did you realize what he said about the other disciple? And this is where you and I can relate. He says, says the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, Jesus' favorite disciple, he wants us to know that. And then he goes on to say, the other disciple, both him and Peter, the lead disciple, started running together, but the other disciple got there first. John, for all of history, makes sure to put in Scripture for all times that not only is he the favorite disciple of Jesus, but he's faster than Peter. Like, really? You're going to put that in there? That's what you and I would do. It's a total guy thing to do, right? He's just going to bury it in, in, in history, and just so that people like us can go, look at this, John's just like us. Verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, here it is again, who reached the tomb first, making sure we know that, also went inside. And he saw and believed. Those four words are so powerful. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then, to the, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And those four words that I brought out at the end of verse 8 are so powerful. He saw and he believed. John did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until he saw something with his own eyes. And for John, seeing was believing. See, many people, they think Christianity is built around faith. You just have to believe. But let me just tell you, in truth, Christianity is built around an historical event, the resurrection. And let me just tell you, you don't have to have big faith to believe the resurrection happened and follow Jesus. It's an actual historical event that can be proven true. And so I want to say it this way, um, when it comes to faith, it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's not that you have big faith, is what the key is. It's the, it's the object you're putting your faith in. That's the key. If we put our faith in the wrong person or object, it's pretty much useless. And let me just give you an example. Um, let me put a picture of someone up on the screen that you all know. Who is that? Yell it out. Sean White. What does he do? Snowboarder. Snowboarder. What, what, how many gold medals does he have? 
<laughs> three, okay? He's got three. But here's the thing. How much faith would you need to believe that this guy in the picture could actually win a gold medal in the half pipe at the Olympics? You don't need much faith at all because he's already run three. So of course you're going, well, yeah, he's, he could probably win another one. He just did like a month, month and a half ago. Well, let me flip it. How much faith do you need to believe that this guy could win a gold medal? Huh? How much faith would you need? A lot of faith. In fact, I'll just tell you, all the faith in the world would not get this guy a gold medal. You could believe all you want with all of your heart. It's not going to happen. See, it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the object that you put your faith in. And so I want to take a closer look at the Easter story and see if this story is enough for us to put our faith in Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to invite some of you to put your faith in Jesus today. Because today's your day to cross the line of faith and accept the truth about who Jesus was and is and wants to be in your life. Now, because of the way we want the rest of our service to go, um, we're going to go ahead and receive our offering now. So ushers, you guys can go ahead and come on forward. And let me just say this, during this, ser during this part of the service, um, hundreds of you give to Kensington, many of you online. And I'll just say, look for an email from me Wednesday because many of you know we're making some really cool changes here. And one of them will be switching um, your giving over to a new online platform. But I just want to talk about why so many of you give here. And for those of you that are wondering, why do people give here? It's because many of you in this room, you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And that belief has not just changed your thinking, it's changed everything about your body and about your life, including your finances. And so those of you that give, thank you. And for those of you that are guests here, um, I'll just say something you never thought you'd hear in church. We are not interested in your money, right? You're like, well, I can't believe you just said that. I'm being totally honest. We're not interested in your money. This service, we actually hope it's a gift to you. We are so grateful that you are here. Feel free to let the basket go by if you want to give. We're not going to stop you. But, if, but I don't want you to feel obligated to give anything because we're just glad you're here and we actually want something for you through this service and that is to meet the risen Jesus Christ. So let's start with what John saw that led him to believe. What did John see at the tomb? And so I'm going to give you five clues that help us see what John saw and they all start with the letter S so that maybe we can remember them together. But, uh, but here's clue number one, the first of five clues and it's two words. It's this, stone moved. I'm going to ask you to say that with me. Ready? Stone moved. The first thing that John would have noticed when he was running to the tomb faster than Peter was that the stone was not covering the tomb, which was really a cave. Historians believe that this stone weighed close to 3,000 pounds. It was rolled into a groove down in front of the door of the tomb to lock it in place. The only way to get it out of that was with this lever system and a huge group of guys or a bunch of, bunch of girls, too, to, that can get that stone out of the way. I had to throw that in there, okay? Um, equal opportunity offender. So I wanted to get, the, to get the stone back out. It would take a huge group of people to do that. Matthew's account tells us that God actually moved the stone via an angel and an earthquake. So the first clue to what John saw that's documented was the stone was moved. Clue number two, another phrase that begins with S, seal broken. Let's say that together. Seal broken. 
The tomb was sealed with a Roman seal, which means there was a rope that was put across the, the, the stone and like an X, uh, like a big X, which stood for the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. And to break that seal was an immediate death penalty by crucifixion upside down. Now, why did they do that? Because the religious leaders and the political leaders were afraid that the disciples would break in and steal the body. And so they put a Roman seal on it, and not only did they put a Roman seal on it, they also protected it with a Roman guard, which was four Roman, uh, Roman guards, and they believed that they doubled it to eight, round-the-clock surveillance, and here's the deal with the Roman's guard. If they allowed that seal to be broken, if they failed at their task, they were burned at the stake by a fire started with their own military clothes. So they had every reason to make sure that that tomb never opened. John is running and he sees the seal was broken and the guard was gone. And the Bible tells us that they ran out of fear of the angel that actually moved the stone. And I'm giving you this information. It's from the four Gospels that are in the Bible. But do you know there are nine other accounts outside of the Bible that tell the same story? It's not just the Bible. The first clue is the stone was moved. The second clue is the seal was broken the third clue, another S word, is, is spectacular linen. Let's say that together. Spectacular linen. Inside the tomb, the linen was shaped in such a way, I think this was the start of John's tipping point into believing. Because remember, he saw and then he believed. I believe this was the start. This proved it to John. If you ever study how they bury bodies back in the, those days, they would take spices and embalming materials, they would put it all over the body, and then they would wrap it in linen, starting at the feet all the way up to the shoulders, and then they, like a mummy, and then they would take a second burial linen and wrap the head up and then lay the body in there. And did you realize, did you notice when I was reading it, John describes the linen five different times? Five different times. He describes the linen because it was that impactful what he was seeing. And here's what many scholars think. Um, I'll read to you a quote from a book by a guy named Josh McDowell. He had a law degree, and he decided he was going to prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened. And so he started doing the research, and you know the story because there has been so many people this has happened to. He gets into doing the research. He ends up finding that there actually is no evidence that proves it didn't happen. Everything points towards it happening, and, and he couldn't disprove it. He becomes a believer, and then he writes a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And this is what he writes about the linens. He says, picture in your mind John's entering the burial cave. He looked over to the place where the body of Jesus had lain. There were grave clothes in the form of the body, slightly caved in and empty like the empty chrysalis of a caterpillar's cocoon. Seeing that would make a believer out of anybody, he never did get over it. Now think about what John saw. Jesus didn't get up and like carefully unwrap the linen and lay it neatly on the, on the, on the place where he was laid. He didn't like burst out of it, shredding it, leave a pile of it in there. It was literally still in the shape of his body and somehow he was, he just passed through it. He just moved through that just kind of like. Now, could Jesus do that? In a physical state, no. But in a metaphysical state, Yes, and it might sound weird, but Jesus also did this when the disciples later that night, they were locked in a room because they were afraid they would be next. And all of a sudden, Jesus enters the room without coming through the door. In his physical body, that's not possible, but in his resurrected body, 
It is. And let me just say this. The Bible says that we will get a resurrected body to anyone who believes in Jesus. And I'm just excited because mine's going to have two legs. I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm going to have two legs there waiting for me. So somehow, Jesus passed through the grave clothes. And because of that clue and clue number four, I believe John hit his tipping point to believing. The, the clue number four, starts with an F, is spacious tomb. Let's say that together. Spacious tomb. There's a lot of room in that tomb because there's nobody there. Get it? Nobody there. <laughs> okay. Lame pastor joke. Didn't work for a service either. I thought you guys would be it. All right. Scratch that one off the list for next year. <laughs> the most compelling evidence there is is the empty tomb. No dead body ever found. And I'm sure the religious and the political leaders, they were searching and searching and searching after the resurrection and never came up with a body. It would have shut Christianity down forever before it ever even got started. But they never did because they couldn't. Have you ever read an account or a book or a story that said that there was ever a body? You haven't because this is one of those where even atheists will say, all right, that one, there's, it's an indisputable fact. There, there was never a body found. And so John is standing in the tomb, and suddenly all the dots come together. The stone moved. The seal was broken. The guard was gone. The spectacular linen in the shape of a body, the spacious tomb, there was no body there. And John starts to connect the dots to Jesus' own words, where Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He said that four different times in Scripture. And John's going to destroy this temple. And I'll raise it in three days. And he starts connecting the dots. John remembers Jesus' claims as, as that he is God. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in this will never die. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John starts to connect 400 Old Testament prophecies that foretold the coming of God's Messiah and begins to realize, I think in that moment, that they're pointing directly at Jesus. Which gets us to the last clue that John saw that we can experience as well. And that is this, supernatural encounter. Let's say that together, supernatural encounter. What do I mean by that? John actually writes about his personal encounter with the risen Jesus. And it's supernatural because now all of a sudden John's talking to a man that was dead and in the grave for three days. John and the disciples go on to spend 40 days with Jesus after his crucifixion. They walked with him, ate with him, talked with him, touched his resurrected body. It's recorded that over 500 people were eyewitnesses to seeing Jesus alive and spent time with him. So many people met with him after the crucifixion. Peter, James, John, Thomas met with him. Many of you know the story about Thomas in the Bible. He's described as an adjective. It's like attached to his name. What is his name? Doubting Thomas, right? And I got to be thinking, like, Doubting Thomas, poor guy. Like, he's like, one time I doubted, okay? One time. One time I said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. And I touched the things in his hands. Ripped. And like, the one time he says it, and he is forever known for all of eternity as Doubting Thomas. Like, we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to be going, hey, Doubting Thomas. And he's going to go, dang it. I can't get away from that. But here's what I love about Doubting Thomas Eight days after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, the disciples are locked in the room again, afraid for their lives. And all of a sudden, whew, Jesus shows up. And he walks up to Thomas. 
and looks him in the eyes. And he says, I can't believe you doubted me in front of everybody. In fact, get out of here. You're not welcome here anymore. Is that what he said? No. This is where you just got to see the character of God. Jesus walks into this room and he walks up to Thomas and looks him in the eyes. He says, Thomas, come here. He says, go ahead. Thomas touches. Thomas puts his hand inside and he falls to his face and says, my God and my king. See, you got to know this about God. He's not afraid of your doubt because truth be told, everybody doubts. He actually meets us in our doubt. And he says, see for yourself. Experience me for yourself. And I'll just tell you, Thomas is not the only one. Millions of scholars and skeptics and atheists and doubters have come to Jesus by realizing that this actually happened. This was written about in one of the most accurately scribed works of antiquity in the world, the Bible, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It's irrefutable in history. You can't deny Jesus lived. You can't deny that he was crucified. And there was no body ever found because he's still alive and he's risen. You can try and explain away the resurrection all you want. You can try to explain away the Bible. You can argue about God's existence. But the one thing you cannot argue with are the billions and billions of people who say my life is forever changed because I had a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. From every continent, from every people group, from every language, from every century, billions of people having supernatural encounters with the God who says, I love you so much, I'm willing to put my life on the line to pay for your sins so that we can have a relationship. So I want to read you a story about a man who had a personal encounter with Jesus that started on Easter Sunday, 2011. His name's Andy. He says, 11 years ago after my mother died and after a series of disappointments, including the betrayal of my girlfriend, I decided to walk away from God. And I didn't just walk away. I denied his whole existence and mocked everything about him and everyone who believed in him. My girlfriend of two years and I broke up in 2008. My life, my planned 50 years of future just collapsed right there. I had nothing left after that. No goal, no purpose in life. By the end of 2008, I had most of my investments gone. By the end of 2009, I lost my income. By 2010, I lost my home. And a few months later, I became homeless. Being so alone, I visited a church for Easter. The church I went to visit, Kensington Church, Orlando. That service uplifted my spirit, made me feel less depressed. So the next week, I decided to join the church's volunteers on the tech team, and I saw the people and what God was doing with them and through them. A few weeks passed by. My life was hard, homeless, and uncertain. And I reached the point that I wanted to have God in my life every day, but I still had the hardest part to make, hardest step to make, forgiveness. Asking forgiveness for all the immoral, shameful things I've done. For when I hurt or wronged people, for the faults and mistakes I've made against myself and others. Forgiveness for everything I can't and don't want to carry anymore. But that was only part of it. I needed to forgive all those who ever hurt, betrayed, or wronged me. 
And I closed my eyes and I forgave the people who had wronged me in the past. And get this, I even forgave those who would wrong me in the future. And then right there, I said one last prayer. Dear God, you now have my life. I let you have it. And I will follow you. I will do as you want me to do. And I ask you to give me your wisdom, to guide me, to teach me, to lead me. Amen. And then he ends with, I, Andy, a man of a colorfully messy past, a shameful path of life, as of this day, I walk with God. Incredible story of life change that only Jesus can bring about. And then, so crazy, I found this yesterday in my inbox. Three years later, he writes me, and I really hope I responded to him, but he writes me. We had lost touch. He had moved back to Hungary from where he had come from. And he writes me and he sends me this email. He's catching me up on all the things going on in his life. And then at the end of that email, he says, you probably wonder why I wrote this email to you. He says, well, the answer is very simple. I had one pastor in my life in the USA and ever since, and it's you. I don't know where this next part comes, but he says, I watched Little House on the Prairie recently. <laughs> I'm thinking that's prime time in Hungary. Like, yeah. In this next part, I don't know what to make of it. He says, I watched Little House on the Prairie recently, and it reminded me of you. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. So I decided to write you an email. It was with your help in Kensington that I found God, and I will always be grateful for that. And then he ends with this. The Bible is still my number one book to read. And like I said years ago, I am with God and know that he is with me. And let me just tell you, when you accept the truth of Jesus, when you accept the truth of the resurrection, and you say, I believe, there's something spiritual that happens, supernatural that happens. God says that he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in you with resurrection power. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the power of the living God inside of you. You see, all those other religions, the founder is dead and in their grave. There's a body in the grave, not Christianity. Our founder is not dead. He's alive. He's alive, and he said that whenever anyone accepts me, whenever anyone believes, I will come and live with them, and I will be theirs, and they will be mine, guiding and directing and helping and giving wisdom. That is what God offers to those who follow. And I'm just telling you, you want that power in you, you need that power in you. I need that power in me to be the man that I need to be for my wife and my kids and for this church and for all the areas of my life that I lead. I don't want to do it on my own. When I'm by myself, I make stupid choices. But with Jesus Christ in me, there's a wisdom that comes and a power that comes so that I can lead my life down a path that I really want to be on. And I'll just say that for some of you, today is your day to cross that line of faith and to kind of get to the point where you say, you know what, I'm tired of hearing about this story in other people's lives. I want this story to be my life. I want this to be my story today. And I'll just tell you what you find when you look at it from that perspective. Because I've seen the evidence, I've heard the testimony. See, the world tends to think that Jesus is an illusion and what the world offers is real. But I'll just tell you what I've seen, what I've heard and personally experienced, what the world offers, that's the illusion. And the Jesus that rose from the dead and offers us life, that is real. 
And so right now, for some of you, I want to give you the opportunity to invite Jesus into your life. So would you bow your heads with me? Everybody in the room and close your eyes. And I just want to tell you in the next few minutes, this is just an opportunity for you to surrender your heart to Jesus. And you can make my words yours. You don't need to say them out loud. You just need to mean them from your, from your soul, from the, the core of who you are. And you can borrow my words. There's nothing magical about them. But if you're ready to step across the line of faith right this moment and accept Jesus into your life, you can just say something like this. Jesus, I believe. I believe that you are who you said you were. God in the flesh. Come to earth to pay for my sin. And I ask you right now for that forgiveness. I believe that you not only died for my sins, but you rose from the dead. And I ask for that power, that resurrection power to be in my life. Help me to live my life for you as best I can. Give me the power to do what I can't do on my own follow you and to live for you. In your holy name, amen.